0: This is Talkin' Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talkin' Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Black-Tailed Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start talking Mule Deer. This is Jody Stemmler. We are at the North American Wildlife and Natural Resources Conference. And I'm Steve Belinda.
1: And joining us right now are, of course, our... Esteemed, uh,
0: illustrious, boss, president, CEO, president, CEO
1: <laughs> the man who makes things happen, Miles Moretti, president and CEO of the Mule Deer Foundation, and we also have from the more bu- importantly, yeah, yeah more <laughs> importantly,
2: from thanks, Jody, <laughs> from
1: the U.S. Bureau of Land Management, Mr. Frank Qualman, who's the National Wildlife Program leader. Frank, what does that mean?
3: So we have a division of Fish and Wildlife Conservation in the BLM. And we've actually had this division since 1965. The division covers wildlife, fisheries, and threatened and endangered species. And so of those three programs, I'm the wildlife program lead. And so you ensure
1: that the field programs get the funding they need, the direction they need to manage mostly habitats. I guess all habitats You bet. on federal lands, uh, BLM federal lands, uh, mostly in the West, but there are some in, in, in other places, correct?
3: Correct. Yeah. So my role in DC, uh, a lot of it's budget, getting money out to our state and field offices. Ooh, that's fun. You <laughs> bet. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you lot. went to wildlife school just to do budgets, <laughs> didn't you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then we uh, we do a lot with developing policy. And a big part of that is working with partners, working with our state agencies and working with our NGO partners like yours. But uh, most of the species that we manage the habitat for are under the purview of the state agencies. So they, they're a Big partner.
1: So mule deer, you help manage the habitat where the state manages the population, exactly. harvest, etc., Correct.
3: Correct.
0: Right. Now, I think to just to lay a, a little bit of a foundation here, I, I think it's important to understand the Bureau of Land Management and your agency mission and some of you know you're, you are. The, the governing legislation law that, uh, that you guys work under is the Federal Land Policy Management Act. and That has some very you know, direct stipulations on how you're supposed to manage your lands. I don't know that everybody fully understands what that means and what the multiple use mission of the Bureau of Land Management is. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of how that multiple use and then your job as a wildlife specialist and looking over all the wildlife programs, how that works and integrates together?
3: You bet. So, uh, the BLM originated from the General Land Office and the Grazing Service. They were merged in the 1930s, the 1940s. 1946. uh, 1946. And um, in the 1970s, they introduced the Act that you're talking about, and that mandated that BLM manages for multiple use and sustained yield. So, with mule deer, that comes into both sides of it. Um, The multiple use side, we obviously have... uh, a role in providing for hunting opportunities, wildlife viewing opportunities. And on the sustained yield side, we make sure that we're maintaining the habitat for uh, these critters that reside on public lands.
0: And yet you've got a lot of other uses that go on um, that also have that. So how do you work through the process of balancing priorities for an area or ensuring that those multiple uses and those various species that use Bureau of Land Management lands how does that process work?
3: Yeah, it can be challenging. Uh, I see it as somewhat analogous to uh, farming and ranching. My grandparents farmed, and they obviously farmed for, um, to make money off the land, to provide for, for food, et cetera. But they also wanted to make sure that they were maintaining the land, conserving the land, and providing for wildlife habitat and things like that, water quality. So in BLM we provide for livestock grazing, we have wild horse and burrow uh, herd management units, we have a lot of uh, recreation opportunities, we have a big role in uh, providing clean water to a big portion of the US. And so there's a lot of things going on on the public lands but uh, our role within the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Division is to make sure that we're maintaining that wildlife habitat.
1: And you do that, you guys write what they call a land use plan or a resource management plan, which is good for about 20 years. And in that plan, which is required by FLITMA, you have to identify how you're going to either allocate resources or designate areas or you know, meet that multiple use sustained yield. Correct? Mm-hmm. Correct. And in most cases in the West, mule deer and other big game are species that you specifically identify that you need to work with the states to meet that, correct?
3: Yep, definitely. And there's a big role for, with the public in our planning process. Um, along with FLIPMA, we operate under NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, and a huge portion of that is working with partners, working with the public to find out what their concerns are with the public lands, um, what they desire for the management of the public lands.
1: So like Winter Range, the state designates it, they give you a map, you then include that into your, your land use plan so that as you fulfill your mission, you're making sure that you take care of those special resources that are identified for specific species.
3: Exactly, yeah. Uh, Mule deer winter habitat is uh, one of the data layers that we've included going way back in our land use plans. Um, that's always been an important piece, an important component of our resource management plans. And as those data layers and that information continues to evolve, we want to make sure that we're working with our partners and working with our states, uh, state partners to understand better where those important habitats are. So we introduced policy this year to better incorporate those state data layers into our planning process.
1: And one of the emerging data layers is migrations, correct? You bet. And, I mean, we're learning a lot from these radio callers out there, and we're beginning to see that treated like winter range and summer range correct it's it's correct in so what's the challenge to that
3: you know I think the challenge to that is that it it takes quite a long time to to gather that information you have to get quite a few collars out there you have to track the critters over a long period of time you have to uh, consolidate all the information and then work with the the data modelers to figure out where these animals are moving where the important stopover sites are where the bottlenecks are, etc. So it's it's a work in progress, and we've provided some research dollars to state agencies and other partners for, for putting collars on these animals for helping to figure out those areas.
1: Now, Miles, what he's referring to there is Secretary Order thirty three sixty two, habitat quality improvement or enhancement on winter ranges and migration corridors. I know you're extremely involved in that. Uh, tell us how this money's playing out, how it's getting out to the field, and and you know where it needs to be spent.
2: Well, the Mule Deer Foundation we've always been a habitat-based organization, and BLM has been one of our best partners through the years. And and through Secretarial Order three three six two, it sh- it shined a spotlight on winter range and those migration corridors and stopover areas. A lot of those are on BLM land, BLM private and forest. And so the money that we're we we raise as an organization, grants we. We receive. We're focusing in these migration corridors, stopover areas, winter range, and of course, uh, you know, a huge, a huge amount of that work is on BLM, and there, and and we've got uh, uh, several projects across the West on BLM land that are that are working on habitat and quality and rangeland restoration. But this new data helps us focus our efforts.
1: And Frank, I saw from one of your presentations earlier. I think you guys. Ate- $2 million to that effort, that, that National Fish and Wildlife Foundation granting effort that's actually going to result in projects in these migratory corridors.
3: That's right. We're really excited about that. Um, we're getting some dollars on the ground. And uh, all those dollars will be working with partners. Neil Deer Foundation has been one of our biggest partners for many, many years. And we're excited to have this effort going out. But in addition to that, we also have some funds going to our states and field offices, and we've strongly encouraged them to work with partners like the Mule Deer Foundation and getting projects done at the local level.
1: Now, uh, we've been working with y'all on this up- upcoming opportunity, the, the national funding opportunity. Tell us what that's going to be, and and for anyone listening that wants to get involved, how they can you know see that announcement and possibly be part of it.
3: Sure. Yeah. So we've in working with partners, we've realized that getting assistance agreements with the BLM has become somewhat difficult in the past few years.
1: Now, Miles, would you <laughs> confirm that? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. More with their granting people, not with their field people.
3: <laughs> and there's, I've been learning there's a lot of rules involved with that. But we've been working, we've been hearing from our partners, and we've been working on trying to find ways to streamline that process because the quicker we can get these assistance agreements completed, the faster we can get work done on the ground where it's needed
0: and that can be important in fire areas and and, you know for restoration after a burn if you can't work that process through very quickly you're given a lot of chance for for invasive um you know species to come into cheatgrass or medusahead or other issues to not be able to get that rangeland back right is that is that a big part of the reason why that that speediness is important
3: you bet yeah, that's a, that's a huge part. As, as you all know, there's huge issues with wildfires in the West. There's uh, huge issues with, with uh, cheatgrass and other invasive species. And we have a tough hill to climb in, in dealing with those challenges across the West. So the more that we can work with partners, the better we're able to deal with those challenges.
1: So you're going to have a national funding opportunity that's going to be on grants.gov that's going to open up programmatically the opportunity for folks to say I want to work with BLM in the future correct
3: correct yeah so at the national level there'll be a a programmatic funding opportunity template like a a standard written approach that we get signed off on by our leadership on uh, mainly doing habitat work with our partners and then that template will be tiered down to our state offices or BLM state offices And that will take one of the steps out of this long, arduous process of of getting these assistance agreements done. And so all of the projects that our BLM state offices might be interested in doing that year, a lot of which, most of which is going to be habitat restoration, will be under one funding opportunity for the state. So our partners will have many less funding opportunities that they need to apply to and it will sort of sort of be a one-stop shop for every blm state office you just described
2: steve's assignment for the next few <laughs> months <laughs>
1: well being someone that has to shake the sugar tree and make a little sure. bit of fruit fall um, it's really <laughs> exciting that i'm not going to have to go through that process individually at the at the at the project level, that we're gonna be able to streamline that, and I think it's important for our listeners to know, this is about streamlining and making it easier to get money on the ground, not to bypass any rule or regulation or, you know, do anything different. We've been pushing for this through multiple administrations and mm-hmm. it's exciting to see you guys finally in the Trump administration making this happen because there are partners out on the ground, whether it be a state, an NGO, a landowner, that really don't know the administrative process. It's a huge hurdle to get projects done. And. They don't have the luxury of, like Miles does, is having me, of being an ex-BLM Forest Service guy who has those skills, was an administrative officer, was a you know uh, a contracting officer that can do it, not in my sleep, but pretty easily. So we really appreciate that, and I think that what it'll do, and Miles, correct me, I'm wrong, it's going to send a signal to the people that actually put money in those pots for you mm-hmm. to put more in, whether it's yes. the presidential budget or what Congress does they're going to say, well, hey, this isn't going to get caught up in a bureaucracy anymore. It's going to get out to the field. Well, one yeah. of the
2: things with this when this is in place with our work on policy and advocacy in, in D.C., is we will advocate for more resources through, through Congress to come to BLM, you know, for this important program.
1: So, Frank, a couple issues that we want to talk about. Um, we've talked to other folks in the states about the first one, Wild Horse and Burroughs. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that we know that they can affect rangelands we know that mule deer can be affected through territoriality guarding of water holes and that how where's the bureau going I know you guys that's been something that's been out there as long as I've been involved in this stuff where are you guys heading with wild horse and burrow management
3: yeah that's been a particularly tough issue because we have uh, wild horses and burros way over the appropriate management level in the West as many people know and we've Gathered you, a lot. Do you have
0: rough numbers? I mean, I think it's relevant for you know, people who aren't following this to see how dramatic those above appropriate management levels. Do you have general numbers that you can give?
3: Yeah, if I recall correctly, we, appropriate management level across the West is about 27,000 wild, horse and, wild horses and burros. And we're over triple that. We do a lot of gathers we have a lot of horses and holding facilities and pastures in the midwest but that costs a lot of money a lot of money it costs a lot of money to gather them costs a lot of money to hold them and feed them for the rest of their lives and that's draining our wild horse and burrow budget so we're working to try to improve that we're working to try to leverage more funds to do more gathers and get these back down to appropriate management levels because as a wildlife biologist i definitely know the impact these additional wild horses and burrows are having on the range and one of the things that I'm excited about with Secretarial Order 3362 is it specifically says in that direction that we focus some of our wild horse and burrow gathers in areas that are important to big game um, like the mule deer so we're trying to leverage some funds from the wildlife program to get some extra dollars to do gathers in those areas where there are too many wild horses and burrows in important mule deer habitat
1: and that can be quite controversial i know you know i live near the prior mountains herd um jody you're a horse person they're extremely passionate about this issue they don't understand the
0: it's really hard uh you know i grew up with horses my daughter is a rider um and yet i also am a wild so i i can understand where they're supposed to be and where they are now you know everybody loves to see a wild horse running on the range but when you're seeing them then the impacts, the negative uh, forage, you know, the, the, the decline forage, the the loss of water holes, mm-hmm. um, and the declining condition. That doesn't, to me, as a as a person who loves horses. That is less, uh, you know, that that's far more unsightly and sad to me to see some of these animals in horrible condition than it would be to manage at the levels that do. So it is, it's a hard, it's a conundrum. And the, some of the horse people are extremely passionate. They belong there, but mm-hmm. they are feral. The, these horses did not you know, evolve, they came back, they were released during the Spanish times or, or during um, settlement periods, right? I mean, so this, yeah. we're talking, th- this is not a native species. And when it comes and impacts the uh, the natural habitats, that's where where the challenge comes.
1: Well, and, and you know, I, I love horses. I've done some horse work not as, at the level Jody has. But in drought periods, I can tell you those horses get real visible. And when you see an animal that's suffering from drought, I mean... It really does – you know, we don't see the deer as much or the elk as much or the, the the other small game when they're suffering, but those horses are extremely visible. They're right along the roads. They're looking for forage. They're looking for help. And it can really break your heart to see some of these animals out there yeah. in poor condition. So well, I will
0: – I also in the horse community, obviously the adoption programs that mm-hmm. you guys do is it has, is, is fantastic. Um, and I've seen some incredible – mustangs work in a variety of disciplines that you would not even think but there's a lot of work that goes into that and and the sheer numbers of animals that you have in holding facilities is never going to be met by the adoption rate and people being willing to take them so that again it's this constant challenge of of trying to 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 do the humane thing or to to make sure that they're living a good life but also recognizing the impacts that they're having on the system you know you you
2: know as wildlife managers you know over the years we when we have excess game of any kind we manage that down to the appropriate levels try to push through our management actions and that can be hunting or transplants or whatever and and it is from from though a non-horse person it's frustrating that we cannot do that or cannot find a solution to that because the range damage is really severe and in some cases permanent and it's it's you know and it's just something that uh um, we're going to have to get a handle on this as society. Well, we can't keep kicking the
1: can down the no. road on this one. No. we got to make some action. And, you know, Congress is going to have to step up and, and give the agencies the ability to take some appropriate actions. I mean, you guys are trying within the law, but the laws has got some pretty tight sideboards. Well, and
0: and you are, I mean, you are under conflicting mandates, right? You're under the conflicting mandate of the Wild Horse and Burrow Act, which is to try to maintain the this history, this icon of the West. Mm -hmm. And yet you also have to manage your other species and the range. Um, And it's it is it is a challenge to to hit both of those goals and and make everybody happy and make more importantly, make the system, the, the, the landscape happy and the species on the ground. All right, Frank,
1: sage-grouse. Okay. You guys got some uh, decisions coming out. You've been in the process of revising some, uh, I guess, planning for for sage-grouse. Give us the latest on on sage-grouse and the BLM.
3: Sure. So uh, we've been working on revising the plans and working a little more closely with the states the past three years, and these plans are now coming out. The records of decision will be released in the next couple weeks.
1: So that's in uh, late March, early April. Mm -hmm. Um, Are there any significant changes from the previous plans? Because, you know, there was a lot of time and effort and people involved in uh, about 10 years worth of planning efforts to get us to where we were in 15 uh, in the not warranted for listing underneath the Endangered Species Act. Are we going to be changing that drastically that we have to be worried about
3: revisiting the whole listing issue? Well, a lot of that uh, will be determined in the in the future. Um, remains to be seen. <laughs> there were some changes. I don't know if I'd use the word drastic changes, but uh, we worked a little more closely with the states on this effort. I was, I was more involved with the earlier effort, and that, that was a huge undertaking working with the states, working with partners, working with the public to find out how we should be managing this sagebrush habitat across the West, which is important not only to sage grouse but to about 400 other species, one of which, of course, is the mule deer.
2: right. Am, am I allowed to ask Frank a question? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think it was either in your presentation or one of the presentations we've had here at this conference where one of the changes was uh, a big issue was focal areas, mm-hmm. and they're now going to be called
3: priority areas. It, uh, what's the difference? What What do you know? So some some of this is just terminology. Okay. But the big thing to remember here is is this is a state-managed species, and so we want to look to the states as far as determining what's important you know what's the what's the most important habitat for these species and then what's additional important sagebrush habitat um that we may need to be cognizant of to uh to look to to, um, maintaining the habitat for in the future?
1: Well, we're not trying to put you on the spot here. Well, we are, (laughs) Frank. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, We have a long history of working together on this, and, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. Sage grouse is, I think, second only to horses in the emotion that it brings out with the most current uh events on blm lands out there in the west and and you know energy's that uh, next one so. going to say wait a second <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i'm sure often, oftentimes, energy, uh, often, going oftentimes energy and sage grouse are <laughs> and tied Mildere together and, yeah and, and a lot of stuff obviously and so i've said for 20 years you want to know where the best energy development is go to where you have your highest density <laughs> of grouse and chickens because that just happen or your winter range because that just happens to be a quirk fate i don't know Maybe it's God playing a trick on us as uh, wildlife managers. But, it's, but it really comes back to that, how hard it is to managing conflicting priorities
0: Multiple as, a f- as a federal land manager. You.
3: Oh, absolutely. It's a big challenge. Um, but it's a challenge that I like. I see we have a lot of opportunities. We provide a lot of the energy for the country, and we're proud of that. Uh, I have, like I said, I, I come from farmers. My dad was in agribusiness and oil and gas industry. I grew up with horses. But I'm also a hunter and I also love wildlife and I love recreating in the outdoors and our public lands across the West are important for all of these things. So it's it's about finding that balance and the program that I'm in, the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Division, our focus is, is that sustained yield side and making sure that we're maintaining the habitat for these important species across the West.
0: Well, and it's important also to remember that multiple use doesn't necessarily mean all uses, all the time, in all places. And that's part of the challenge that BLM has to go through in that planning process, is recognizing what are the highest value resources, um, what are the, the conflicts, can you manage it seasonally, can you directionally drill so you're not impacting important habitat, but those balancing and saying, in some cases, no, you can't use this land for off-highway vehicles during this time of the year because it's important winter range or, or yeah. some of those balances. It, it isn't, it, there, there's, I used to work on a lot of access issues with Congressional Sportsman's Foundation and it's not, the, my, my phrase used to be, it's not all access to all places, it's the right access to the right places and trying to balance that is, is a challenge, but it's, it is a goal that we all need to recognize and work behind and help find that balance. Well, also. I know
1: having been as a field biologist in the BLM in two energy fields that were, you know, significant at, you know, oftentimes the employees get a bad rap for not, you know, folks that don't know what goes on a day to day basis, don't understand the the dilemma that you're in really, they'll attack you. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to say my job is wildlife. It's not energy development. It's not grazing. My job is to ensure wildlife. Mm -hmm. We have other specialists and we try to work together the best we can. There are powers to be in this country that tell us what priorities are. Changes through time, through administration, through the needs of the country. And it really falls back on do we have professionals at the local level that are doing their job. And in this case, it's being a biologist taking care of the habitat and you know, I would say to those of you out there that, that have criticized your local biologist or your, you know, whether it be BLM, Forest Service, Fish and Wildlife Service, or, Game of Fish, try to understand the position they're in before you criticize I, I'm, oh, I'm yeah.
0: having this vision. In Colorado, we have this ad campaign, the hug a hunter, hug, hug an angler for their thing. And I'm thinking, we should, we should do a hug a biologist <laughs> campaign. Fist, fist bump a biologist. bump a bio- Well, no, because that could lead to fist bump <laughs> face.
3: <laughs> yeah, we have some amazing field biologists out there. And not a ton. We have about 200 wildlife biologists out there. It's usually only about one per field office. And when you look about, when you look at how many biologists we have with the extent of public lands that we manage, it's about one wildlife biologist per million acres. That's about the size of Glacier National Park. So they have a tough job, but their job's made easier by by working with partners by like you by working with uh, state agency field biologists. You, you know, I, here in
2: Northwest Colorado, we're here in Denver. Our, we've got uh, great projects with. Uh, BLM that's got their fire people, their wildlife biologists, Colorado Parks and Wildlife are you know, um, and then our 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 people are working on the ground and they're doing some amazing projects. And so um, you know, probably what we we don't get that out to the public as much as we should. We try to put signs on it, we try to send you know articles in our magazine and things, but but we really need as an organization to get. do a better job of getting that word out of how we're all working together
1: well and i'm just going to give a shout out to the folks in idaho that we've been working with out of the fields and shoshone field office Uh, we've been planting sagebrush out there this year when we finish our planting in uh, october we'll have planted a half a million plants in a three-year period and it couldn't have been done without the the funding and the management coordination that your staff out there gave us. And for for those that are out there listening that are part of the project, thank you. We want to do more stuff like that and you are way undervalued and under appreciated by a lot of folks out there. But the restoration of those rangelands is happening because of their individual efforts.
3: Oh well thank you and, and I would like to personally thank your members. Uh, it's these folks on the ground that are helping make things happen and getting that habitat where it needs to be out in the West.
0: Well, thank you, Frank, for taking the time to spend a little bit. I mean, it's a busy conference, and, and you've got, had a lot going on and presentations going on, so taking a half an hour to spend with us was, is greatly appreciated, and thanks for all that you do. And continue to let us know how we can help you at the Mule Deer Foundation and how our members can get involved.
3: Great. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Yeah,
1: Miles, as always, thank you for giving us the opportunity to do this, and thank you for talking Mule Deer.
0: Thanks for Talking Mule Deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org. And stay tuned for the next episode of Talking Mule Deer.